Well, the first thing I think he would do would be to stand up and tell the truth. I mean, he had a great expression that was uh, just tell the truth and watch them scatter. So the further away the problem is, uh, the easier it is to postpone action on it. And that's essentially what we're doing. Be real, because people in New Hampshire are really cool. I'd say get in the game. This is a problem facing your generation. You have to have a voice in the decision. Welcome to Facing the Future, brought to you by the Concord Coalition, on WKXL, New Hampshire's talk radio station. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Each week, we take a nonpartisan dive into topics related to the federal budget, the economy, and how they affect our nation's future. This week, our guest is Rachel Snyderman, Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. We'll ask her about the fiscal challenges awaiting the winner of the 2024 presidential election and the more immediate challenge of finally passing the fiscal year 2024 appropriation bills. And by the way, that's something that's now about four months overdue. Concord Coalition Chief Economist Steve Robinson joins the conversation. Well, Rachel Snyderman joined the Bipartisan Policy Center uh, following her service with the Millennial Challenge, Millennium Challenge Corporation and the Department of Commerce, and the Office of Management and Budget. She also spent uh, some time abroad with the U.S. government, also working with Innovations for Poverty Action and the Mexican Ministry of Finance. Earlier in her career, she worked for EY's Quantitative Economics and Statistics Practice in Washington. She earned her B.A. in Economics and Latin American Studies from Wesley College, and holds an MA from Johns Hopkins University's School of Advanced International Studies, where she's an adjunct lecturer of international economics. And I might ask her about international economics because people keep talking about our debt <laughs> in the context of uh, economics and uh, the world economy. So anyway, Rachel and Steve, welcome to Facing the Future. Thank you so much. It's great to be back. Good to have you with us. Um, Rachel, on uh, on Friday, January 19th, uh, you and I are going to be at the Warren B. Rudman Center for Justice, Leadership and Public Service at the UNH Franklin Pierce School of Law. And we're going to be discussing the uh, fiscal challenges facing the next administration with the center's interim director, Laura Kanoy. And I should just tell our audience, if you would like to attend that, uh, we have uh, either in person or by Zoom, you can register by going to the Concord Coalition website, which is concordcoalition.org. And there's a registration link. And I said we we have a, a Zoom link for those that would like to attend virtually. So, uh, Rachel, we can give a bit of a preview here. What are the economic challenges for the next administration that, uh, well, economic and fiscal challenges that most stand out to you? Uh, well, thanks, Bob. It's uh, it's great to be back um, here. You know, I always love just hopping from one fiscal crisis to the next with you. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, certainly as we're staring down the, the remainder of the, the calendar year, there are some significant unknowns, right? We don't know what the next administration and the next Congress will look like. But what we do know is that they are going to be faced with some significant fiscal deadlines immediately. First and foremost, we know that the debt limit is going to rear its head again um, early in the next administration. Um, right now, the debt limit was, has been suspended through January 2nd of 2025. 
But we know that once it is reinstated on that date, Congress will have to come together uh, with the next administration to determine how they are going to raise the debt limit. Um, We're also going to be facing the expiration of trillions of dollars in tax cuts at the end of 2025 that were implemented um, under former President Trump in 2017 and the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. These are provisions that will affect nearly every taxpayer in the United States, as well as the business community. Um, We also know that there is a global tax agreement that um, will be up for debate in Congress in 2025 as the OECD and G20 countries have worked over the past years and have forged ahead and find some consensus in the global business community as we deal with global taxation. Um, As you can imagine, um, uh, congressional Republicans and and Democrats are far apart in how we come to compliance with what the OECD has proposed. That's going to be another fiscal deadline that we must faith. And then, of course, the insolvency of Social Security and Medicare's trust funds. We will be um, another year closer to their impending insolvency in their early 2030s. And so the next administration in Congress is going to need to you know, find their political courage to um, overcome some of these very significant fiscal deadlines that we know they will have to face. Um, in 2025. So, well, you know, maybe 2024 isn't the year of a ton of legislating. We know that 2025, uh, there is going to have to be uh, much of it. And likely, you know, once again, in a time of divided government, a situation where the both sides of, of, uh, of the aisle are going to have to come together to forge some sort of consensus on behalf of the American people. Yeah, some of this is, is hard to, uh, to can kick. I mean, you know, they, they like to, but you just talked about some deadlines that are, you know, that, I mean, they can maybe dissemble a little bit, but when you're talking about the insolvency of trust funds, okay, maybe there are some gimmicks there, but it's, it's going to be hard to, it'll be open and obvious that they are gimmicks and the tax cuts will expire or not. I mean, if they do any, if they do nothing, they'll expire. Do you think that, Given that, uh, that those deadlines are going to be hard to to gimmick around, do you think there's a possibility that uh, once we get through this next election, they might come together on some of this stuff? There are many wild cards, right, on the table. I think that the because we know that the debt limit is going to be in play and that the significance of inaction over the debt limit... You know, Uh, politically choosing to default on our financial obligations over coming together to raise the debt limit, because that is going to be so central. I think that lawmakers are going to come to the table. Now, of course, we know in past throughout the past decade, they like to do that at the 11th hour. um, And they like to conveniently combine all of these deadlines together. So I wouldn't be surprised where, you know, in my crystal ball right now that we're looking at a situation where Congress implements a few, you know, can kicking mechanisms so that all of these deadlines are compressed into one together. And we're looking at a, you know, similar fiscal cliff like we did um, at the expiration of the Bush tax cuts um, when President Obama was was dealing with Speaker Boehner at the time with how to overcome, you know, the, um, that fiscal calamity. And so I think that the, you know, we can learn from history <laughs> um, and uh, certainly behoove behooves lawmakers now to start their preparations well in advance of what these deadlines um, will force uh, in 2025. But yes, I think that we're going to see can kicking and gimmicks galore. But at the end of the day, we're going to the, the only final resolution will have to be 
some sort of bipartisan consensus that raises the debt limit, you know, addresses, you know, hopefully implements and maintains pro-growth, pro-family tax reform in a way that also doesn't bust the deficit as we're looking, you know, staring down a $34 trillion debt. Yeah, I'm I'm really looking forward to that next debt ceiling debate. <laughs> that is, or maybe they'll just default on uh, obligations. But Steve, let me bring you into the conversation. Yeah. So talking about learning lessons from history, um, the last several debt ceiling bills going back, I think back to 2011, that part of the deal was we'll raise the debt limit in exchange for capping discretionary spending. And so that's sort of a common sort of trade-off that we've seen time and again. And of course, most recently, this past spring of last year, they did the same deal where they said, okay, we're going to accept two-year caps on discretionary spending in exchange for raising the debt limit. And of course, that deal promptly has fallen apart, which is why we're still, you know, in January of 2024, we still haven't passed the fiscal year appropriations because... Essentially, the, the two sides, even though they supposedly agreed, they, they didn't really mean it, apparently. Speaker McCarthy lost his seat as a result of trying to, to, to cut a deal uh, to, to stick with the caps. I mean, what are the odds that, you know, we, we, you know there's the old saying, fool me once, shame on you, fool me twice, shame on me. You know, are, are the members sort of watching this saying, well, you know, we, we keep trying to cut these deals and they don't actually work. We can't stick to them. You know, if you can't stick to the deal you cut to, does that make it even harder to cut a deal in the first place? Is is that even is that even a possibility that that they're simply not going to be able to 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 reach a deal this time? It's an excellent point. I mean, I think that especially in a time where that political goodwill is so crucial um, to just get to the next fiscal deadline, and I think the point you bring in, Steve, is is incredible. We're just talking about kind of the basic operations, the budget, the, the natural, normal budget homework of Congress. I mean, you know, not even putting aside the the deadlines that are going to be that they're going to be facing in the next administration. But I, that's the big challenge right now. I mean, we saw last week just this kind of ping pong back and forth between the deal remains. The deal is now in jeopardy. Once again, now kind of a structure in place. But but the structure in place just being, again, another kick the can down the road as we're seeing in fiscal year 2024 discussions, another two-step you know, laddered, I like to call it a stool, CR, um, to March 1st and March 8th, right? So in a time when, you know, the political megaphones just are are, are, are so loud, um, they can really kind of tune out a lot of this, the, the importance of, of, of reaching that behind closed doors uh, consensus. You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are talking with Rachel Schneiderman, Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are talking with Rachel Schneiderman, Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. We're discussing fiscal challenges facing the next administration and the more immediate challenge facing Congress of trying to pass appropriations bills. And, uh, you know, Steve, you you had a question. I just wanted to talk about the um, 
the appropriations process right now. They're about four months behind schedule. Right now, we're we're looking at maybe they were they were going to have two drop dead deadlines in January on the nineteenth, and then again February second. So now it looks like we're going to have two deadlines extended until March, maybe March first and March March eighth are the numbers uh, dates yes. that I've seen. Uh, Steve, what do you think? Well, you know, I mean, this goes back to what we were saying before the break is, you know, you you think you cut a deal and get a bipartisan agreement at the leadership level, and then you have your own members rebel and undercut the deal and, and not agree to it. I mean, you know, we, we saw that happen with the debt ceiling and the spending caps, and here they are still fighting over what the spending levels are going to be. <laughs> Does the Republican speaker, you know, is, is he at risk once again? Because if he cuts a deal with the Democrats and actually votes on it, his own members get upset and vote to remove the speaker. I mean, what's what's the chance we'll have another new speaker uh, by, by next Congress, uh, Rachel? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> um, gosh, you know, every every moment in Washington, D.C., you never can predict. Um, you know, I think that where I've seen the calculus change a little bit just in the past few days is that we've seen more Democrats come out and say that, you know, as long as this agreement, this this top line agreement remains, they could be incentivized to continue to support Speaker Johnson if, if that were the case. I also think that we are now seeing um, kind of some significant movement out of potential bipartisan tax deal for the first time really since December of 2020, which I think could also, if kind of paired or um, uh, strategized with um, this this extended laddered CR could potentially bring some more folks into to, to support. Now, of course, there's a there are a lot of moving pieces here. We're talking about, you know, trying to get a potential tax deal either intertwined with with the CR or passed unilaterally, which would be um, very difficult, but but achievable. And before filing the IRS's filing season begins in, on January 29th. Um, but what I do think could bring some more folks from both the Republican and Democratic side to the table is that we're seeing now bipartisan support for the long overdue correction to the tax treatment of research and development, um, which uh, the agreement in essence kind of restores full and immediate expensing for businesses, research and development expenditures, basically undoing the five-year requirement that took into, that went into effect last year. This is has the support of several Republicans in Congress, um, of course, the business community as well. And kind of on the other side of the table is um, a deal to expand the child tax credit that supports more low-income families across the United States, um, while also importantly retains that incentive to, to enter the labor market and, and maintain um, labor force participation, which has been a kind of a crucial negotiating bargaining chip for for Republicans as they've worked with Democrats to potentially expand the child tax credit. And so I think that because we've seen some of this consensus of really materialize over the past few days and, and hours, it's too early to tell really how that could strategize and play into um, uh, the vote required to get the two-step laddered CR extended. But I do think that at least it keeps more folks in the conversation about you know, their potential support uh, of a package, uh, a broader package. And so a lot going on right now in D.C. And uh, but but certainly I think that there are I'm more optimistic by the day that not not only will kind of this top line agreement maintain, but that with the introduction of this tax, this bipartisan tax package, um, we could actually get some 
legis- some real legislative bipartisan legislative wins, um, certainly in tax. But of course, as, as Bob noted, not a ton to celebrate over 2024 appropriations because we still are looking at a situation where Congress is you know, four months delayed and in, in doing its routine budget homework assignment. And yet we're not even talking about you know, the, the um we're just still talking about another CR uh, extension. And important to note, too, that the State of the Union, I believe, falls within those two deadlines of March 1st and March 8th. So uh, it's going to be a busy few weeks in Washington. So yeah, cur- curious timing. Um, uh, go ahead, Steve. I think I know your question, but go ahead. <laughs> so, so, you know, sometimes uh, bipartisanship is is uh, more easily achieved if you stop your uh, stop worrying about the deficit. I mean, if the Republicans want to extend the R&D credit and the uh, Democrats want to extend the child tax credit, uh, they might have a deal. But if you want to pay for extending those, sometimes that's a much harder deal. So now I was reading something about maybe the uh, employee retention mm-hmm. tax credit from the COVID bill might be a potential pay for. What's What's your understanding? I mean, they're actually going to be able to pay for extending these tax cuts? So um, they're certainly looking at some of these responsible offsets. Um, Yes, the employee retention tax credit, which was a pandemic era tax credit that at the time really was incentivized to help business owners weather the pandemic and their labor force. Um, But we've seen since that it's been subject to significant fraudulent claims due to some, some aggressive marketing and promotion to bring on to encourage ineligible claimants uh, to take advantage of it. I am encouraged that there is a framework whereby Congress is really looking at, you know, if we are going to look at opportunities to reform the tax code, we have to find out ways to pay for it. Now, of course, there's been some criticism that this is a, that whether or not this is a true pay for or what have you, because it is a newer credit that was was implemented during the pandemic. But I think that it shows that there was goodwill on both sides, that we recognize that these are expanding the the child tax credit, restoring full expensing for R&D that helps support our business, that our business community, that if we want to make positive steps to reforming the tax code, we have to find opportunities to pay for it. I think that that framework will move lawmakers very well going into 2025 as we're looking at trillions of dollars of tax cuts expiring. And we know that already that there is going to be significant bipartisan support to extend several of those tax cuts, not just on the Republican side. I mean, Democrats are going to support many of the individual tax cut provisions that went into um, effect for low and moderate income households. And so, and of course, if, if President Biden wins, wins re-election, there is this, you know, the, the $400,000 tax pledge um, that he will be keen to, to, um, to, to keeping um, uh, likely. And so I think that this, this lays down a very important marker that, um, you know, we're at least starting to look under some couch cushions when it comes to um, implementing, um, uh, you know, trying to find responsible and, and feasible offsets um, when it comes to implementing new policy. It's it That will certainly be a challenge, I guess. One of the things that could hitch a ride, I suppose, on the appropriation bills is the establishment of a fiscal commission to look at the long term. Uh, I know the Bipartisan Policy Center has been generally supportive of that idea. Uh, What is your current thinking on a a fiscal commission? 
Um, so I, you know, and I, Bob, we have to, of course, allude to your leadership and BPC's past efforts um, on our on our work on um, back in 2010 on our debt reduction task force. But you know, yes, as you say, BPC is structurally supportive of a of a fiscal commission. Of course, we do think that there are um, some elements that can help lawmakers really ensure that a fiscal commission is, is set up for success. I think that in the current, when we're looking at the, so just to give the audience a bit of a background, there have been kind of um, twin bills that have been introduced in both the House and the Senate this past fall. Um, the Fiscal Commission Act, that which was introduced in the House by Representative Scott Peters and and Bill Heisinga, um, and the Fiscal Stability Act by um, Senators Joe Manchin and, and Mitt Romney, and with several co-sponsors across the aisle um, on both bills. Um, you know, these these are really looking to establish new commissions that want that seek to address our unsustainable uh, fiscal trajectory. Now, I think that as we're looking to uh, their chance of passage right now, I think it's a little bit too early. We're still seeing that there are some internal discussions and negotiations happening um, as the appropriations process makes their way. I think that there could be a moment for them to hitch a ride on, um, on current CR language, but it's just a little bit too early to tell. But I think what would be really important for these fiscal commissions. And again, this is kind of based on BPC's experience leading a debt reduction task force last decade and our, our past efforts kind of supporting fiscal commissions. But I think that for one to have momentum in 2024, they really need to focus on bringing in the American public, you know, really ensuring that folks understand what is our debt challenge? How does this impact American households, American businesses? Really identifying why our debt is a problem and how it could impact our economy, our national security, um, our global standing. And, and then together, really having policymakers come to the table to kind of identify those principles that both sides of the aisle can agree on to addressing the debt, such as, you know, it's important that we recognize that we can't just grow our way out, that we have to talk about revenue generation as well, you know, as an example, and and really tasking lawmakers with, with policy options, not just a race to find $7 trillion of cuts and only looking at the non-discretionary side of the budget equation, but really recognizing that um, success can be defined in many different ways, doesn't necessarily have to be you know, r- rushing to vote on a, a debt reduction package. And so, um, you know, I'm optimistic that there are conversations continuing in um, in Congress over a fiscal commission. BPC will continue kind of to, to be supportive of those efforts. But Bob, I mean, truly would love to get your, um, what you're thinking too. I mean, I know that we've, we've been able to discuss uh, this over the past few months, but, you know, where you'd want to see a fiscal commission in Congress go. All right. Well, we'll do that on the other side of the break. <laughs> You're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby, and Steve Robinson and I are talking with Rachel Snyderman, Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. We're talking about fiscal challenges facing the next administration. We'll be right back after these short messages.
Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are talking with Rachel Snyderman, Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. We were discussing uh, fiscal challenges for the next administration, and we were talking about a, uh, a fiscal commission and uh, the possibility of appointing a new one. And Rachel, you mentioned that some years ago, uh, I think it was in 2010, I did serve as a member of the Rivlin Dominici Debt Reduction Task Force, which was uh, sponsored by the Bipartisan Policy Center. And it was meeting at the same time as the Simpson-Bowles Commission. In fact, Alice Rivlin was the, the one person who was a member of both. We came to very similar type conclusions. And you know, as you look at a, a new possible fiscal commission, uh, there are some lessons that I learned from serving on that. And one is, uh, you know, certainly that everything needs to be on the table. You're not going to get Democrats agreeing to things that, that Republicans want without getting some things from the Republicans that Democrats want. It, it, it sounds simple, but it, it just needs to be reiterated when we start talking about a commission in this because things are much more partisan than they were in 2010. And they seem pretty, pretty partisan to me in those days. Everything needs to be on the table from that sense, but everything also needs to be on the table. And by that, I mean all parts of the budget, just from a substantive point of view, because the gap that needs to be closed is, is much bigger because exactly. we've done nothing. <laughs> and, you know, that's, that's one of the problems. Sometimes people say, well, you know, maybe we've done nothing, but nothing bad has happened. Well, mm -hmm. what bad has happened is that we've dug ourselves a much bigger hole uh, that becomes much more difficult to fix. Even if, you know, forget about balancing the budget. That's that's long gone as a, as a achievable goal anytime in the near future. But just trying to stabilize the debt is very difficult. And so if you start taking things off the table, like Social Security and Medicare and defense, and veterans, it becomes, uh, you know, you just have to you have to cut so much of everything else that it's just an absurdity. And then if you take revenue off the table, well, forget it. I mean, you can you know, you're practically eliminating the rest of the budget. So but, but the lesson I learned is that people in the Rivlin Dominici Commission were able to make those compromises mm -hmm. and working together. Uh, and I would f finally just uh, you know, reiterate one other point that you made, which is that public education is important for a for a commission. We did a fiscal wake up tour uh, <laughs> for, for several years. And, you know, people from the Bipartisan Policy Center were guests on that from time to time. And uh, I, I think people really like the idea of hearing from credible analysts on either side of the partisan divide or ideological divide that can agree on the facts, even yep. if they don't agree on the solutions. And so anyway, I think that that's, that's an important thing for the commission is at least agreeing on a set of facts, explaining those to the public, and then having a debate about, you know, an honest dialogue about what are the options and, you know, what trade-offs and, and compromises need to be met? I, I could not agree more. I mean, I think just that, that how, you've, how you've defined it so, so well, just agreeing on the facts. I mean, I think that 
we have in the past decade as kind of the political polarization has just intensified. Um, and we've seen the economic and our, the fiscal trajectory of our nation change so much. But we've also enjoyed you know, a relatively low cost of borrowing over the, fact, over the past 15 years, which is likely in many ways dampen the impacts of our rising debt, right? And But now we are facing higher interest rates. We've faced persistent inflation over the past few years. Um, and given how much higher our federal debt is, I think that there really is a concern now that we could see consequences both at the macroeconomic level and the household level materialize um, very quickly. I mean, you know, we've seen the impact of spikes in interest rates and inflation and unemployment um, on our, our financial well-being and and I do fear that if kind of without the a complementary a complementary real effort to 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 educate and and to include the public in this dialogue, um, you know, I think it's you know, folks, these are all kitchen table issues for for us. I mean, similar to how we are paying our mortgages, our car loans, our credit card loans, you know, the United States has to pay off its debt too. Um, and as that debt grows and our interest costs grow, um, you know, so do those payments that allow us to to make good on on that debt and so i think that um you know this is really an opportunity especially as we are going to see kind of a a very politically charged campaign um over the coming over the coming 2024 campaign over the coming months this is an, a, a time where we can bring together folks respected voices from both sides of the aisle um to again bring in the american public to the conversation to to showcase that this is uh we have to address our, our, our looming fiscal challenge, not only for our immediate households, but for the next generation of leaders. Um, and if we don't, uh, but, you know, that's really the, the uncertainty there is is what concerns me. Uh, to, to both of you, you know, you mentioned interest rates and that had a big uh, impetus for deficit reduction back in the 90s because people said that interest rates and interest costs would go through the roof if we didn't get our budget deficit under control. We didn't get our budget deficit under control. And, um, well, we had surpluses for four years for a while in the late 90s. But, I mean, starting in the early 2000s, we started running deficits again. And we didn't have the we didn't have the impact on on interest costs uh, and interest rates that, uh, that that we thought we would have. So that allowed people to say, well, gee, nothing bad is happening with all this high borrowing. And in, in the recent months, uh, that has maybe changed a bit and changed people's view about, you know, whether we can just borrow ad nauseum without worrying about it. And I've had a lot of you know, some people say, well, you know, we're the world's reserve currency, so who's going to come after us? I mean, we can just keep printing money. Uh, and I ask this of both of you. Uh, Steve is our chief economist, and Rachel, uh, you, I mentioned that degree in international finance. <laughs> so, <laughs> thinking about the consequences of this unlimited borrowing, why is it that we can't, with the world's reserve currency, printing debt in our own currency, why can't we just keep doing this forever? You know, in the, in the case of all financial crises, everything is fine until suddenly it isn't. And yeah, I mean, it's true. We have the world reserve currency. And so, you know, a lot of, you know, oil, international oil markets are traded in dollars. I mean, there's a lot of international transactions. Other countries, you know, they want to, the, the central banks of other countries, they want to hold, hold dollar reserves. So there is a big demand for U.S. dollars and U.S. dollar denominated assets, specifically government securities. 
But to say that there's a big demand for it does not mean that it's unlimited. Um, and at some point in the future, if you want to, people to keep buying government securities, you're going to have to offer a higher interest rate in order for them to do so. And as interest rates creep up, the cost of borrowing will begin to crowd out the rest of government spending. And so it becomes more and more difficult to, to sustain over time. And if, you know, we've had the, the credit rating agencies downgrade the U.S. debt, you know, were that to happen again, interest rates would go up even further because of the potential risk. It, it's true. We've been successful so far in the, in the kinds of, you know, people who worry about the deficit have been accused of, you know, being chick, chicken little. They, you know, the sky is falling and, you know, nothing's happened. And so the critics say, well, see there, nothing has happened. And so, yeah, it's true. <laughs> nothing has happened yet. Uh, but, you know, there is a limit. We just haven't found it yet. And the problem is, is if we run up against it, by that point, it's going to be too late to do anything about it. And that's that's the real challenge is to convince people that you need to do something sooner rather than later while you still have time. No, I think that you hit it. You know, I think that there are, you know, today in today's day and age too, just the the global, um, the geopolitical um, implications too, um, you know, financing our government activities. You know, we're, we're looking at a situation right now where China, for example, holds about 12% of our debt. And the more that our debt is held abroad, the larger the share of our national income and growth that's accruing to others living in other countries and, and not to American households. And so I think that you know, certainly as we see rising interest costs associated with, uh, you know, increased debt, rising interest payments to foreign bondholders of our debt, that is only going to decrease our national income and have a, a larger ripple effect across our economy. So um, certainly, you know, macroeconomic geopolitical considerations to take into account as well. Uh, you're listening to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are talking with Rachel Snyderman, Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. We'll be right back after these short messages. Welcome back to Facing the Future. I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I are talking with Rachel Snyderman, Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. We've been talking about all sorts of things. And uh, in this segment, we're going to talk a little bit about the, uh, the budget uh, the budget process and, and also about uh, demographics and the fiscal future Rachel, you uh, you at the Bipartisan Policy Center are uh, celebrating an important uh, milestone this year regarding the the uh, Budget Act. So not only us, uh, um, you know, we at the, at the Bipartisan Policy Center are celebrating this, but as a nation, we're celebrating the 50th anniversary of the 1974 Congressional Budget Act. Um, and you know, I think it's certainly time 50 years later for us to to, to stop and take stock of whether or not the budget process is actually working, um, when we've seen you know, time and time again, um, as we're as we're living right now, the budget being um, months overdue, lawmakers kind of being at odds with how to overcome um, its uh, ordinary everyday you know, budget homework, um, and then also we've seen calls from both parties that the process itself is outdated and, and broken. And as Steve alluded to, um, we've seen um, you know, uh, the downgrade of, of the United States um, 
from Fitch this past summer, one note that they actually put into their statement, into their calculus as they were determining to to um, downgrade the U.S. sovereign credit rating was was the complexity in our budget process alone. Um, you know, we've seen CRs, con- these continuing resolutions, these stopgap measures, um, really become the norm rather than the exception. Um, Congress has passed an average of five continuing resolutions each year since 1998. I think that there's there's a fascinating statistic that since 1977, Congress has passed all of its 12 appropriations bills ahead of the start of the fiscal year just four times and never in the 21st century. So that's something to really, <laughs> you know, can, can you imagine uh, having done that in grade school, just <laughs> just choosing deliberately not to have done your homework and, you know, um, in the past uh, 47 years, really, I've only done doing it complete one time. That's pretty extraordinary. So I think that it's certainly past time for for uh, for Congress to come together. Uh, it's not, of course, the, the most exciting of topics when we're talking about budget process reform, but certainly one that impacts truly every single taxpayer, because um, it is how Congress determines how our hard-earned tax dollars are spent and allocated across the federal government. One thing that we like to talk about here is fiscally responsible economic growth. Of course, it should fit within a rational budget system, which, uh, so I agree that we, <laughs> we've got some, we've got a ways to go on, uh, on, on budget process. Part of that is budgeting for the long term, which we really mm-hmm. do. Uh, it's bad enough in the short term, but you know, part of the budget process is that there, there really aren't any things that encourage, you know, dealing with the long-term unsustainability that uh, that we talk about a lot. So, a couple of years ago, we did a project called uh, "Towards an Economic, uh, Fiscally Responsible Economic Growth Project," and some of the things were, you know, fairly obvious stuff that we talk about a lot: social security reform, healthcare reform. And those are very important things. I think part of it that goes flies into the radar screen a little bit is the importance of demographics and the impact on the economy, not just on the budget, yes. but on the yeah. economy, because we have a much slower growing workforce that has big implications for how much the economy can grow and produce. And if we're, we're trying to afford much, much bigger burdens from uh, these you know, entitlement programs, with the boomers retiring and healthcare costs growing, uh, you're going to need a, a actually a faster growing economy. And the projections are for a slower growing economy, simply because we have um, uh, you know these demographic issues. Uh, there are no easy fixes here, you know. You could, but uh, but I might ask you because <laughs> I know the bipartisan policy center uh, agrees. You know, in broad scope, with we need to do things to um, improve workforce growth and workforce uh, training. So, what are some of the what are some of the options there? So, um, you know, it's such an important question that that truly impacts us all. And I think that this is an area where at BPC we're not just looking at this through, as you know, kind of the budgetary or the fiscal lens. Because this this impacts our daily lives, and we're not only only kind of thinking about it through that one approach, but um, this is where we need to bring in the immigration conversation you know, front and center. This is where we really need to understand as a nation how we are going to grapple with the how artificial intelligence is changing the distribution of jobs and job and job training. And so, you know, it's it's through a lot of um, and through, of course, you know, the impact that we're going to see increasingly 
with energy innovation and, and climate um, and how we kind of take that into account. Um, uh, and then, of course, you know, underscoring all of this is just the fact that as we've seen demographic, you know, our demographic changes that has put different strains on different sectors, as we've seen, you know, um, more so our, our, our healthcare and our hospitality sector. And so it's, it's really, it's a, there is a panacea of, of, of challenges that we face, but also opportunities for, for sensible policy solutions. I think that, you know, especially as we're thinking, you know, we have, we've, we've kind of walked through some of these fiscal deadlines in the next year, but there's really an opportunity to kind of marry those with longer term forms. Like let's tackle our immigration uh, our immigration challenge. We've seen this be kind of the the political hot potato time and time again, and increasingly right right now in the middle of the of um, the, the spending debates over what we're going to do at the southern border. But there really is an opportunity for us to kind of focus those conversations through the lens of how does this impact the U.S. workforce? How does it generate additional? You know, how can we tackle the immigration challenge to to generate more tax revenue for our nation to bring in labor that our economy needs to be able to grow and prosper, uh, similarly to kind of on the, the debate about um, artificial intelligence. So, you know, I'm optimistic that if we, again, kind of put this, the, the political megaphones aside and, and we're able to bring kind of these common sense solutions forward, and that's really something that here at BPC, um, that's our bread and butter. That's what we, that's what we want to do and how we want to aid um, the American public and, and those who represent them. Um, so, you know, have to remain optimistic, but uh, it's it's certainly important to emphasize that the the challenges that face us are enormous um, and they are multifaceted. Steve, uh, get anything to 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 help us with this optimistic? Uh, <laughs> well, you? I, you know, we, we've we've mentioned the the topic of public engagement a couple of times, and then we've also uh, talked about the increase in in partisanship uh, in in both in Washington and across the country. I mean, what from from the perspective of a group called the Bipartisan Policy Center, what's the future of bipartisanship? I mean, is the public so polarized and are the members of Congress more afraid of, you know, losing their primary and therefore they're unwilling to 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 take on the 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 leadership role of bipartisanship? I mean, who who's gonna lead? Can 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 the public make it safe for members to be bipartisan or do we have members who are willing to step up and be bipartisan at the risk of, you know, losing their seat? I mean, what, what's the future of bipartisanship, Rachel? It's a question I kind of, I love to answer because I do think about, you know, when we're talking about topics like a fiscal commission, right? We've seen kind of these sister bills introduced in the house and the Senate. They've had a number of co-sponsors across the aisle. And we're talking about, you know, folks who have, you know, who, who are known in kind of their, in their party and their caucus as supporting one policy over another. And, um, but they, they see that when we're talking about putting all of these different issues on the table, um, that we can come together and try to, and, and really put that good, um, the good faith effort into working with others. And so I think that when, especially when it's, when we're talking about, these kind of massive challenges and how we are going to find, you know, the package or the the framework through which to address them, such as you know a fiscal commission. I'm I'm optimistic that we do have those folks in Congress. Now, of course, we're living in a time where, you know, the first to get to Twitter and the the wittiest, you know, talking point that can go viral on on cable on cable news is you know, the topic du jour of the day. And I don't know if we're going to be you know, getting past that. Well, especially in a time of, 
of an election year. But, you know, I am confident that there are, are still so many lawmakers who are in Washington for the right reasons and they're doing they're here on behalf of, of their constituents. And that at the end of the day, kind of they're thinking about their own families, their own communities and, and their, their country about how they can, you know, hopefully leave office and, and um, leave the country better than than when they um, when they inherited the job or, uh, you know, came to Washington. So. I think right now uh, I have to I have to (laughs) maintain that bipartisanship um, is going to have to be the way of the future just because we're going to continue to see divided government, um, especially with the slim margins that we that we um, that we live in in the Senate and the House. But, uh, you know, until until we don't see those slim margins um, and again, kind of the introduction of some of these legislative packages that that truly do push do want to push lawmakers forward in putting everything on the table and having those difficult discussions you know behind closed doors um that will inevitably see the light of day you know we can only be optimistic about that well keep up that optimism and uh and keep up the great work at the bipartisan policy center because it really is a uh, a great mission and an important one uh that's all the time we have for this week on facing the future I'm your host, Bob Bixby. Steve Robinson and I have been talking with Rachel Schneiderman, Director of Economic Policy at the Bipartisan Policy Center. Thanks for tuning in. We'll be back next week with another edition of Facing the Future. 